Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. So we find our way back to our seats. It's a good time to be together to worship each other, to worship the Lord with each other. Not necessarily to worship each other, I suppose. <laughs> if that's happening, maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good time to be together. You know, the thing that, I mean, I love so much the gathering of, of the people of God to worship for a lot of reasons. One, because of the encouragement, of course, getting into the word, communing with the Lord, but worshiping together, praying together. These rhythms are so different to anything else we experience in our lives. This moment, this hour and a half or two hours that we set aside on Sunday morning is a kind of a weekly reset for us, isn't it? And that's a good thing. As we take this moment, I'd encourage you to just allow the Holy Spirit to be working in you, giving you this moment to reset for the week to come. A couple of things that I'll mention right at the start in your worship folder on this inside first flap are some events that are taking place this week in the weeks to come, including today, right after church. We're going to have our church picnic over at Dora Park. I know it says one o'clock, but don't let that bother you. Just grab, you know, it's, it's bring your own picnic. So whatever you need to do to grab lunch and then meet us over at the band shell right away, we'll be there. Not the band shell, the picnic shelter by the playground. You know, that's a great annual event we do, but it also coincides in, on purpose with our life group kickoff. We, we, of course, like many churches, do life groups or small groups or home groups, whatever you want to call it. We call them life groups. And by having this annual rhythm, it gives us all that flexibility, that permission to recognize, hey, you know what? Thursdays are no longer good for me, but Tuesdays now are, or whatever it is. Or maybe you just want to try a different group. We build this in annually so that we all have that freedom to do. So um, there is a separate little insert in your bulletin that has information about the life groups. We have four that are on the docket, but there's also a clipboard back there that says to be determined. In other words, if you're interested in a life group and the various times that we have available aren't lining up for you, write your name on that clipboard and we'll try to work something out. We want to make sure we have the appropriate life groups available for any who would like to be involved. A couple of other things. Um, most specifically, uh, this number three, Emmaus Discovery Class. If you're new to Emmaus and you'd like to know a little bit more about us, about our church, about the denomination under which we are associated, we're going to be having a discovery class where you can find out about those things, find out about what we call covenant partnership, membership with our church. I have that penciled in for the 28th, but honestly, uh, I've got one group signed up, and I'm willing to move that. So if you're interested in that, but the 28th won't work out for you, just fill that out on this back page, this reply card. Fill out discovery class, and we will work that out. 
So um, one thing to mention specifically with that discovery class, many of you know, some of you may not know, we are in a season of leadership transition. Pastor Andy, who was our pastor for 17 years, uh, he resigned and has moved to Kansas City. We sent him out with celebration and joy and gratitude for the years of service. He and Amy are uh, thriving in a new season, but that leaves us now kind of, uh, yeah, praying and seeking on what's to come. Our district leadership is involved in the process of helping us find a new permanent pastor. And part of that process at some point will be you folks meeting an individual and hearing them speak and asking questions of them. And then you get to be involved in a vote if you're involved, if you're a part of our church, if you're a member of our church. So we'd love to make that available if any of you would like prior to needing to take a vote because we'd love to have your voice. All right. With all that, let's dive into our message today. Of course, we're nearing the end of our journey teaching through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Over the past week, Jesus has been giving us directions and signs that we're to follow which lead to the kingdom of God fulfilled in our lives and fulfilled in our communities. It's kind of been like an epic road trip. <laughs> you know, and as we live our lives, it is like a road trip. You know, we try our best to read the signs, to decipher the time it's gonna take for certain things to happen, to follow the map and to stay on course. And of course, there's inevitably that time when you are riding along and you start looking around and you don't recognize the environment and you start asking, did I miss a turn? Did I get something wrong? Did God want me to go left or left and I went right? And that's the tension that Jesus is encouraging us to be in, to live in, to seek him in. You know, of course, a headline came across my phone today. Ian, pull this slide up. Family spends 48 hours in the wild due to Google Maps. It should be a lesson for everyone. 27-year-old <laughs> Darian Aspernall, who was traveling with her two and four-year-old kids and 50-year-old mother, was traveling from Queensland to Adelaide in Australia. They left a hotel in Nakundra on Sunday afternoon, but shortly after that, nobody could reach the family. It led to a massive search launched by local authorities in order to locate the vehicle. As it turns out, the driver was using Google Maps to get turn-by-turn -turn directions to the destination in Adelaide. The navigation app, however, took the driver from the highway and guided her onto a dirt road where her four-wheel drive SUV eventually ended up stuck. In the middle of nowhere, with no cell service, the family decided to go on foot in order to try to seek help. But after walking for hours, they realized maybe this is a mistake. They turned around, they went back to the vehicle to wait to be found. 48 hours later, a helicopter spotted people who were like waving, they had taken their shirts off or whatever, waving with their clothing in order for the pilot to see them. They had turned, run out of water, they had run out of food, and it was starting to be very scary. 
Of course, it's easy to blame Google Maps for the suggesting the bad road, but on the other hand, what an application or any other navigation solution does is it tries to find the shortest route between A and B. It's up to the driver to determine if they're going to follow. As general, this is in an article, as a general recommendation, it is uh, if a road is suggested by a navigation app and it looks dangerous, the driver should stick with a safer route, even if it increases the ETA. <laughs> can we relate? Yeah, I think we all can. <laughs> you know, we're just trying to do our best to follow the signs in our lives. The next thing, that, and next thing we know it, we might find ourselves lost in the Australian outback being hunted by dingoes. <laughs> and I think Jesus knows that that's the way of it. I think he knows that that's the way we tend to be. Sometimes we have our focus locked on and we're doing all the right things or we're walking in the right direction. And the next thing we know, we've become distracted and we're lost. We need consistent markers. We need consistent reminders of what the road should look like, what the destination should feel like and seem like. That way, when we get there, we know we've made it to the right place. And along the way, if things aren't adding up, we can start asking questions. Have I missed a turn? Was I supposed to wait? And of course, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. These verses or these chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's our roadmap. Jesus provided the, these teachings, these reminders, these warnings to be our roadmap in life. You know, the life of faith is not about a formula, it's not about a system, but you can't go wrong by reminding yourself of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount as a good guide. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been. Of course, the Beatitudes, the well-known first few verses of Matthew chapter five, these remind us what the kingdom of heaven should look like. You know, when you go on a trip, you know the destination, you know what the hotel should look like, you know what the beach should look like. Maybe you're returning to family friends, you know what their house looks like. When you show up at a house, there's no question, am I in the right place? That's what the Beatitudes are for us. They help us know what the kingdom should look like. And once it's been made clear where we're going, he began giving instructions in the rest of chapter five and six and seven about how we should get there. Instructions like the call to be salt and light to be present and provocative ambassadors of the kingdom in places where light is needed the most. From there, we heard the instructions about prayer and fasting and giving, how these become foundational cornerstones to our daily lives, how these practices of abstinence, faith, and generosity shape us into people of intentionality able to benefit the lives of those around us. Jesus then gave us the model of prayer that we're to follow in the Lord's Prayer, how it provides healing and structure and reconciliation and trust in us, in our lives, even in moments where things are just 
kind of rotten. It gives us a model to pray. From there, we heard the influence about greed in our lives and the warnings of money and serving two masters. How that undermines our trust in God and it becomes a consuming root in our lives. Jesus then implored us not to engage in judgment. Remember the do not judge sermon. Judgment that diminishes the other in our hearts to the point of condemnation. And that rather we should honor one another, recognizing the Christ-like image that's in all of us, no matter how shadowed it may be. And of course, last week, last week Pastor Grace reminded us of the instruction to seek first the kingdom, to pray, to seek, and to knock, and the door would be opened. A life fiercely focused on dependence upon the Lord when we tend to be pretty self-reliant, aren't we? We pride ourselves in being self-reliant in so many aspects of our lives. And if you've been following along in Matthew, you've noticed we've skipped over some topics. We've skipped over a few themes in 5, 6, and 7. Things like murder, violence, adultery, rules for marriage, making oaths, you know, just the little things. <laughs> we tried to, you know, you could preach through Matthew for a year. You know, we tried to kind of make the destination go. Maybe that's all good stuff for another sermon series. But yeah, feel free to read those things. Jesus has been giving us signs, road markers, waypoints, so we know we're on the right path. But now here in the latter half of chapter 7, He's wrapping up. He's, he's winding up. This is the conclusion of the sermon. This is the call to action. And what do we find? We find that Jesus is giving us warnings. You know, when I was 18 years old, freshly graduated from high school, I was ready to hit the road and be on my own. I'd planned all summer. I was going off to college in the fall and Sure enough, the, the day came at the end of August and I had my 1988 Ford Taurus all packed up with my stuff. And all summer, dad had been giving me good advice, good reminders, things to keep in mind. But sure enough, on that day that I was about to drive off, he had some more. Look out for this. Don't, don't speed. You're going to get caught. You'll get pulled over. You know, all the final warnings. And that seems to be what Jesus is giving us here today. He's giving us the final warnings. Because he loves us. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be wise. He loves us. He doesn't want to see us off the road in the middle of nowhere hunted by dingoes. So today, as we hear these final warnings from Jesus. Let's keep that in mind. These are not judgments of a God who just wants to punish us, just wants to yank the leash or whatever. These are reminders because God loves us. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, but before we dive in, let's pray. Draw close Holy Spirit as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. Let your word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts. And let all other words slip away. 
May there be one voice that we hear today, the voice of truth and grace. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13 through 23, but we're going to break it into three little pieces. So I'll kind of stop us along each way. But first, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You know, those hearing Jesus say these words would immediately be thinking about the roads, the gates that they use almost on a daily basis in the city of Jerusalem, but all the cities in, in that part of the, the, the world. Some of those gates were the main prominent gates that enter into a city. Wide, three or four or five carts could go abreast. You know, it's like, a, it's like a, the interstate, the highway going in and out of the city. But some were narrow and difficult and actually maybe hard to find, maybe hard to see if you weren't paying attention. A single way that only one person could walk or pass. With a wide gate, there's really no effort involved in getting in or out. You simply get caught up in the flow of the travelers and you find yourself moving along with little thought of your own. But the narrow gate that Jesus is reminding us of, that takes a little bit more care and purpose. First, you might have to look for it. And the second, you have to be intentional to make your way that direction. But why the metaphor of gates at all? And why appoint the wide gate to the one that is leading to destruction and the narrow gate as the one that leads to life. You know, if Jesus really wanted the kingdom to be easy, why not make it easy? Clearly, God wants us each to understand our call to be Christ-like, our call to be forgiven, our call to live with him. Jesus wants to remind us that our choices matter, that our actions matter, our motives matter. Learning to follow Jesus and therefore knowing God, the Father, takes intention and care and purpose. You know, I think that there's kind of two things that we can gather from this metaphor, the narrow gate. First, when we learn, when we grow the most, when we have experienced great improvement in our lives, it typically has come through adversity or trial. When we try and we fail at something, we learn, we make adjustments, we make new and sometimes difficult choices so that that won't happen again and that we can go that direction, right? Think of the times in which you've been most successful in your life, accomplishing a major goal, perhaps thriving in a relationship that was really important to you? Was it easy? Or did it take sacrifice and care and effort? Think of all the moments in which you kind of laid aside your preferences. You laid aside your time. You laid aside your preferences so that someone else could get the best of you. Or that, so that you could commit your time and your focus on something that really required it or needed it. 
the moments of showing love and care for those around you by adapting, adjusting, considering others' needs above your own. Sometimes Christian love calls for us to be submissive or even non-resistant in the face of those who would take advantage or abuse. That's a difficult decision. In other circumstances, sometimes our love as Christians requires us to take a stand, to be a voice, to maybe even be a person of protest in the face of some injustice, something that just shouldn't be. And that's an uncomfortable place. It's definitely not a popular opinion. God knows that we thrive and do our best when we're intentional and careful when interacting with the world. The narrow kingdom road promises the most beautiful scenery, peace, joy, hope, reconciliation, but the road itself requires care and intention. So that's one way to look at the narrow gate. The second way to look at the narrow gate is to like, be real logical and logistic about it. The narrow gate reminds us that the experience, to experience life most fully, we need to have a focus and a purpose and a duty and a call. You know, in Jerusalem and many of these walled cities, the smaller service gates for entering into a city had a purpose. The grand wide gate, you know, brought as many people into the city square and then they could disperse from there. But the narrow gates provided a specific job. They provided access for guards, for watchmen, for city emissaries, those who would be going and coming freely, maybe at odd hours, maybe in the middle of the night, because of the job that was required of them. Let's look at this picture of a gate. You can see the main beautiful city gate. This is in Morocco, I think. You can see the main opening there. You can see even the two on the side. Do you see the narrow gate, the service gate on the right? Off the road, it's on the, it's on the sidewalk. You know, that's, that's the service gate. That's the narrow gate. That's the gate that the guards would use, that the emissaries would use, the diplomats, those who needed to go in and out at all times of day. In every way possible, entering into the narrow gate is a little bit counter to the, the, the wide gate. It takes effort, it takes work, it takes thought. But it also requires us to be living into, living for our call, the call that God has given to us, to be servants, to be those who would love others. All the things that we've been understanding from the Sermon on the Mount in these previous verses. The way to life that Jesus has been describing on the Sermon on the Mount takes care and intention. While the contrast between the gates may feel extreme, what Jesus is trying to do is warn us that unless we're intentional, unless we're attentive, unless we're disciplined and careful, before we know it, we might find ourselves just going along with the flow, caught up and going through a gate that maybe we didn't intend to at all. While this may not seem like a problem, Jesus is wanting to remind us that we've been called to live, to love intentionally, to serve others. 
to be Christ-like. As we lay down our rights and our preferences to be servants of love and healing to others, we must intentionally take the road less traveled. We need to be seeking and entering through the narrow gate. Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Remember the headline, the cautionary tale that we started this morning. We must use care when following the map. We must be discerning about the guides and the voices that we choose to follow. Even good old Google Maps. In the time of Christ, it was very common for, for prophets, for guides, for people to just, on the street corner, on the busy thoroughfare, to just start preaching, to start proclaiming, to start speaking the word of Yahweh, claiming that they were his prophet but they actually weren't. They were simply seeking to develop a following, to gather people around themselves, to bring prestige and honor, and really to build support for themselves, whoever would listen. If people listened, that they would end up, if people ended up listening and following these guides, if they weren't truly a prophet of the Lord, they might find themselves being led in ways that they didn't want to go, ways outside of God's intended purpose. And as God says, disaster will follow. Not sure what degree disaster means for each of us. I'm sure we've all experienced disaster at different points, moments in which we took advice or we followed along and went with the flow with someone and we recognized that that, oof, that was not good. The, you know, the problem with false prophets is they seem so very nice, reasonable, and trustworthy. But no wolf is going to let you see his claws or his teeth if he can dress himself in the harmless clothing of a sheep and, it, you know, get the same result. These days, who are the wolves in sheep's clothing among us? They might be prophets in, in the church, in, in this whole thing of faith. They might not be. They might be other guides in our lives. Whom have you encountered or heard about that use the ideas and the principles of Christ for selfish gain? Have you encountered someone who 
was justifying means to an end that didn't feel right, but the end is going to be good. We, we got to do this, even though it doesn't seem to match up, but we know we need to get to this destination, right? Do the means to the end justify behavior and actions and motives that clearly are not Christ-like? Sometimes it's glaringly obvious who, when we've encountered a wolf. Other times it's not clear. But Jesus gave us a test in these verses. Test the fruit. You know, first things first, there needs to be fruit. If, if in your own life, in the lives of others, if there's nothing happening, you're not even doing the purpose. But once you've got some fruit to recognize, once there's some results, once there's things that are coming from your life, test it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like and taste like? Does it look and feel and smell and taste like the things Jesus did? The things you might imagine Jesus doing if he were living in our modern culture? Is the fruit of the people who are guiding you something that's attractive? Are others genuinely being nourished by it? Maybe it might feel offensive to you at first, but you recognize the good and the life that's happening in others. Maybe it's because your heart's working through something. Maybe your heart's working through sin or whatever it is. Are others genuinely being nourished by the fruit? And of course, fruit's not just something to be observed. It should be experienced. It should be something that we can recognize and that has a feeling and a result and an action in our lives. And I think this is a reminder for us too. You know, of course, we're thinking about the fruit of others, those who would guide us. But I think there's also a message for us here. What is the fruit that we have in our own lives? What are we producing? In other words, this gives us something to be attaining for, to striving for individually, but corporately also as a body of believers, as Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins. What is the fruit of our church? What are people seeing and saying and knowing of us? It's not enough to just have great music, to have meaningful liturgy, to have strong teaching. As God's disciples in our community, we need to be salt and light in the places that need it. And we're doing that. I'm so proud of this church and the work that we do. But it's a good reminder, isn't it? It's a good encouragement, a good motive. As we journey the road less traveled, we need to be discerning about the signs and the directions that we're giving attention to, that we're following and chasing after. Many who would attempt to guide us may not share the same values that we do, the same priorities that Jesus made a priority. In almost every decision that we make, there's going to be options. And there's going to be suggestions on which decision we should, which way we should go, which route we should take. Jesus is reminding those people on the hill and us here this morning 
to carefully discern the motives of those who would guide us. And the best way by doing that is to read the reviews or in, in Bible terms, to observe the fruit. That was a slow burn. You got it. <laughs> Look and see what the fruit feels and tastes and smells like. Is it like Jesus? And now our final warning, uh, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and perform many other miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is a harsh one. It can be harsh. It feels harsh. Even those who are apparently were doing good, they were doing miracles, they were healing people. Things that, you know, we would think on the surface level, this is the will of God. How can that person be saying, God, I, you know, here I am. And Jesus is saying, I've never heard of you. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> I think Jesus is reminding us that the motivations, the, the, the way in which we go throughout our lives and the destination that we're moving towards, are we moving towards the right destination? In other words, Jesus told us what the kingdom should look and feel and taste and smell like. He told us the, the, the ways along the, that we should be experiencing, the things that we should be doing with our lives, the outcomes we should be having. That's the destination to which we're traveling. Is the destination to which we're traveling one that props us up because of pride, props us up because we've built this great following. That's kind of what Jesus is describing here. Again, looking at those false prophets of the day, many, their motivation, their methods, their means might have looked good, but their destination was not the destination that Jesus was intending. He's reminding us the ultimate test will be based on how we spent our lives and the fruit that we produced. How we come and go, did we come and go through the narrow gate? Were we about the kingdom's business? All the things that we've been reminded about and learning about over the last eight weeks, all the challenges, the reminders that Jesus has been sharing through the Sermon of the Mount, how are these shaping us? Are they noticed by others? Have we been taking charge of our lives with care and intention? Or have we just been caught up in the flow? You know, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves who was hearing these words from Jesus. Who was gathered on that hill? You know, of course, there's the, the, the crowds, the masses. We, as Jesus began his public ministry, there was just a constant throng of people. And then people were saying, what, what's going on? Where are you guys going? Oh, it's Jesus. And, you know, it just kind of absorbed, snowballed. So, of course, there's the anonymous folk like you and I who are hearing 
Jesus, and maybe hearing Jesus speak for the very first time. But also on that hill were the religious leaders. They couldn't, you know, be apart from this. It's too big. The people were gathering. An event was taking place, and so they had to make sure they were there. So, of course, those are the ones hearing as well. But also we had the 12 and the, the extended that Jesus was directly pouring himself into. The apostles, we've got Peter, James, John, you know, the heroes of our faith. All of those are hearing these words. Jesus knows that our tendency is to set our trajectory and as soon as we can to set cruise control, turn on the music and relax even if you're driving. But he's reminding us to not relax too much, to be alert, to be active, not to be a backseat passenger, but to take the wheel of our lives and to be intentional about how we're interacting, how we're moving in our lives. We may think that we've arrived at the kingdom destination but if we've allowed ourselves to simply be a backseat passenger, going along with the flow of the culture and guides around us without care, discernment, we might discover that we thought we were going here, but actually we ended up here. If we don't work to ensure that we're preserving the values and the priorities and investments that match up with the teaching of Jesus and his life example, we just might find that we've missed knowing him and being known by him. That's the thing that caught, catches me every time I read that passage. I never knew you. It's not enough to look and to act the part of a Christ follower we must be transformed and restored. Are we doing okay? It's a lot. As we wrap up here, if you, like me, have been humbled by these reminders, these warnings on the road, it's not a bad thing. God loves us. Even in hearing these words, I hope you hear his love, not his condemnation. Because like a father sending his son, off to college, he just wants to make sure you don't end up in the weeds You know, in our bulletin, um, on the notes page, there's a whole open side here that's left blank. Part of that's because the sermon notes weren't too long, but also that's so you've got an opportunity. I'd invite you just in a few moments here of quiet. Maybe Ellen, would you mind coming? Maybe in just these few moments of reflection before we come to the Lord's table.
I'd encourage you to think of something. Maybe something the Lord, the Holy Spirit, has tinged in your heart today. A reminder, an encouragement, something that you want to focus on, something that you want to make sure that you're seeking after. Just in a moment of silent prayer, I invite you to meet with the Lord. Write something down. <laughs>